So Matthew 23, verse 23, 23, 23. It's a lot of 23s is where we are. Uh, Jesus is talking about the Pharisees. And if you remember, he hasn't been very um, friendly with them, if you will. He has opened up chapter 23, um, this amazing like criticism and biting and just, uh, just rallying against the scribes and Pharisees. And he continues it here. How terrible it will be for you teachers of religious law and you Pharisees, hypocrites, for you're careful to tithe even the tiniest part of your income, but you ignore the important things of law, justice, mercy, and faith. You should tithe, yes, but you should not leave undone the more important things. Blind guides, you strain water so you won't accidentally swallow a gnat, then you swallow a camel. How terrible it will be for you teachers of religious law and you Pharisees, hypocrites. You are so careful to clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you are filthy, full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisees, first wash the inside of the cup and then the outside will become clean too. How terrible it will be for you teachers of religious law and you Pharisees, hypocrites. You're like whitewashed tombs, beautiful on the outside, but filled on the inside with dead people's bones and all sorts of impurity. You try to look like upright people outwardly, but inside your hearts are filled with hypocrisy and lawlessness. How terrible it will be for you teachers of religious law and you Pharisees, hypocrites. For you build tombs for the prophets your ancestors killed and decorate the graves of the godly people your ancestors destroyed. Then you say, we never would have joined them in killing the prophets. In saying that, you are accusing yourselves of being the descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Go ahead, finish what they started. Snakes. Sons of vipers, how will you escape the judgment of hell? I will send you prophets and wise men and teachers of religious law. You will kill some by crucifixion and whip others in your synagogues, chasing them from city to city. As a result, you will become guilty of murdering all the godly people from righteous Abel to Zechariah, son of Barakiah, whom you murdered in the temple between the altar and the sanctuary. I assure you. All the accumulated judgment of the centuries will break upon the heads of this very generation. Wow. Hey, let's cozy up, Pharisees, and have a conversation. Right? Man, this is just left, right, left. Just hammering against the religious institution of the day. One hit after another. And really, it all points to the same thing. It all points to this picture of who the Pharisee was. Now, let me say that there were indeed Pharisees that would not have um, fallen into this condemnation of Jesus. There were Pharisees that were godly people that believed in God and followed God with all of their heart, their soul, and their might. There were Pharisees like Paul or Saul before he gave his life to Christ, who was the Pharisee of Pharisees, who was a believer in God and tried to do everything he could to follow God. There were Pharisees like Gamaliel, who was Paul's rabbi, who Luke speaks highly of in his account of him. There were Pharisees like Rabbi Akiba who was a, um, such a godly man that when the Romans are murdering him, his very last, last breath is the Shema, is speaking about his love of God. There were faithful 
Pharisees. There were those people who believed in the mercy and justice and faith that God speaks about. But there were probably quite a few who would fall into the category that Jesus is describing here. Pharisees who are Pharisees in name only. Let's take a look at his accusations against them. He opens with um, the tithe. Some of your translations, mine says the tiniest part. Some of them might say mint, dill, and cumin. These small spices. Now, in in the Old Testament, in the laws that the Pharisees would have been familiar, um, in Deuteronomy and uh, Leviticus, it is laid out the laws of tithing, of giving um, part of your harvest to the Lord for the Lord's work, generally to the Levites so that they could carry out um, the the order of the temple. And, And so what would happen is at the end of the harvest season, you would give... A percentage of your harvest. If it's fruit, you give the fruit. If it's corn, you give the corn. If it's a seed, you give the seeds. Whatever it was, it was laid out and accepted that this is a part of life. You do this because God says so. Now the law went on to say that you would also tithe your dill and your mint and your cumin. Now these are small little um, herbs Mint and dill like you would grow on a windowsill in your home. So in order to do this, it was pretty much generally accepted. All the large crops, absolutely. The small stuff, eh. But you have three little mint plants, and you're going to tie that. You take just a little bitty portion of mint, and you give a few mint leaves. Here you go. Here's your mint leaves. The Pharisees made this big production of, we even do that. Look how great we are. We even take the seeds and the branches of the dill plant and give it to you. What Jesus says is, that's great, but where's justice? Mercy, faith. You do these things and yet you operate in such a way that negates anything you could give to God. Because you condemn and you block people's access to God. So he starts with the offering. It's this misalignment of proportions. Like we, we focus on these minutest details and we miss the big picture. And he goes into this, uh, the story of the gnat. Um, now, what would have happened there is when you were drinking wine at this time, um, you know, you wouldn't have the fancy box like we do today that's vacuum sealed and you squeeze it. So the last drops out. Now you would have a jug, an open container of of wine. And in order to drink the finest wine, what you would do is you would pour it through a gauze sack. And it would come into the cup so that you could get all those impurities out that are likely to be in there. Like a gnat, if you will. And he's making this point of you you do everything to, to get out the smallest little thing. And yet you swallow a camel. I mean, this would have been funny. And, you know, you could have laughed when I read that. Um... Because it's a funny picture. They focus on these tiny things, but they miss the big movement of God. And then he goes on to talk about the cleanliness issue. Now, cleanliness of the cup is not necessarily talking about if it has germs on it. Cleanliness to a Jew was a very serious thing. If you were unclean, and there were a lot of things that would make you unclean, you could not go to the synagogue for teaching. You could not go to the temple. You could not be in your social society because if you were unclean, 
If you were around someone and you touched someone that was clean, you would make them unclean as well. It was a big deal. So there were laws upon laws of what made you clean and what made you unclean. If you were unclean, there were certain things that you had to do to become clean again, depending upon the severity of the uncleanliness. So there's all these different laws. There are a ton of laws dealing with how to keep cups clean, how to keep dishes clean. If something is made of wood and metal, the wood can become unclean, but the metal cannot. There, I mean, like, what? Uh, okay, so I can touch the metal part, but not the wood part. There's just tons of things. And, and what he's saying, what Jesus was saying there is you're so focused on the cleanliness of the cup that what is in the cup you don't care about. In other words, you could have wine that was stolen from someone and you pour it into a clean cup and then it's all right because the cup's clean. So it doesn't matter what's on the inside. Again, it was majoring on the minors. It's looking at these little things and missing the big picture. It was putting up this appearance of we are doing things correctly when in truth we're not. And then he follows this um, with talking about the whitewashed tombs. And the whitewashed tombs were, in in Numbers, it talks about if you touch a dead body, you become unclean. And then they went on to interpret this as if you touch a tomb, you become unclean as well. Now, a good majority of tombs in, um, in this day and age were put just on the side of the road by your home. Wherever you were, someone dies, you bury them by your home. And the best place to do that is right by the side of the road. So imagine, if you will, a a big crowd of people heading towards Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. The streets are packed with people on the way into Jerusalem. You're going to celebrate Passover with your family and your friends and and, and God. And and you come across a tomb that you don't know is there because you're not from this area and you don't know where everything is. And you touch this tomb you can no longer go celebrate Passover. So it was a big ordeal. And so what people would do is they would whitewash these tombs before this time of Passover so that as pilgrims are coming in to the city, they would see all of this beautiful because it would take on this kind of almost beautiful appearance, right? The sun shining down, it's a spring day, and you're walking in and you see these white tombs. That created almost beautiful, almost this beautiful picture, but underneath the tomb is still death and decay and impurities. And what he's saying is you put on this picture like you're this pretty thing on the outside while inside there still is sin and impurity and decay and death. And, and then he goes on to talk about the prophets and killing the prophets and Abel to Zechariah. And what that, what that really talks about is the first murder, Abel, and then the last one. The last one, Zechariah, uh, was uh, recorded in Second Chronicles. I'm saying his name wrong, Zacharias, is Second Chronicles. And in the Hebrew Bible, Second Chronicles is the last book. So in essence, it's talking about the first murder and the last murder. That they are there. Now, the Pharisees were there to be helpers of access to God. They were there to allow people to learn and to grow in their faith of God and to become more godly, to be closer to God. And what they always did was they put up these hindrances because they acted like one thing when, in truth, on the inside, they were something completely different. Now, the, the way I began to look at this was, was to see it first, what do I have inside of me where I that I need to get out. Am I whitewashed? 
Am I so concerned about the cleanliness of my outer appearance that I forget to take care of what's inside? That last song, you won't relent until you have it all. My heart is yours. Am I more concerned about my outer facade than I am with my heart? And what do I need to do to fix that? That's how I originally started to see this, but then I had a turn. Because for some reason, I don't even watch this show, but for some reason I I started seeing episodes, what I think would be episodes of the show in my mind. It's on TLC and it's called Hoarders. Anybody ever seen the show Hoarders? Does it freak you out a little bit? You may live on a street and you may have a house on your street that looks something like this. You drive by and it looks great and it looks like a normal, normal house. It looks like a house that's on your block. But then you maybe one day venture inside and you see this. Or this. Or this. That's not what that house looks like from the outside. You, you would never think that inside this house dwells that. And I started to think about the fact that, um, why? I know there's a lot of psychological stuff that goes behind hoarding. But I was more concerned with why am I okay with someone lives on, somebody that lives on my street that has a home like that. Not because it's a health issue and we know that I have issues. Not because it has anything to do with that, but, it be, but because it has something to do with being trapped in a home. Why am I okay that one of my neighbors feels trapped in their home? Why am I okay that one of the people I, I, I live my life with, because we're on the same block, feels so enclosed and has this stuff dwelling inside of them? And then I began to think of all of the things that we all hoard, hurt. Fear, injustice, anger, addiction, whatever it is, we have these things that we hoard and we don't want other people to know. And because of that, we let it build up in our lives and the rooms of our home become cluttered and filthy and scary. Because we live in a world that focuses on the facade. We live in a world and in a community that says, I want your house to look pretty from the outside. What happens on the inside is your business. But that's not the way that God set up a community. That's not the way that God desires us to be in relationship with one another. As he says to the Pharisees, you're so concerned about the outside appearance of things that you forget what's important. You're so concerned about the mint and the dill and the cumin that you forget about the justice and the mercy and the faith. You're so concerned about the whitewashed tomb that you forget that inside is something that needs life. And so I started seeing this as not just a reflection on myself. And yes, there are rooms in my house that need to be cleansed. But, but I began to see this as an issue of the body of Christ where we come to worship on a, on a regular basis and, a, and often we are told to act a certain way. Maybe not 
in words, but in practice. So often we come in to church and we dress differently than we do the rest of the week. And we act differently than we do the rest of the week. And, and people say, good morning, how are you doing? Great, how are you? When in truth, you're not. You're hurting. You're suffering. You're in pain. Now some days you may come in here and you're like, I am awesome. It was a great week. God moved everywhere and it was rocking and you come into worship and you're jumping up and down and it's great and sometimes you need to come in here and you need to sit down and i don't care how loud the song is and how many times in the words of the song it says to raise your hands or how many times august makes you clap or how many times anything anybody does anything you cannot stand in fact you want to sit down and you just cannot stop the tears coming forth and it just breaks down into the ugly cry because that's where you are so often we don't think that that's possible here here in the church, not just us, but so often we don't think that it's the right place to do it because we're worried about what people are going to think. Guess what? There's not a single person in here that hasn't had a time where we broke down and cried. There's not a single person in there that hasn't suffered hurt in some way, that hasn't been through the valley, the shadow of death. We all have. Some may be going through it right now. Some may have just come out of that valley. But we have all been in those times. And this is the place where those walls should be broken down. Where we should break down the doors of those homes and rush in and say, You can't hang on to that anger. You can't hang on to that hurt. That injustice because it's not yours. Give it to God. Let me sit with you. Let me cry with you. Let me praise with you. What would it be if we we became a body of Christ that wasn't concerned about facades? What would it be if we became a place where honesty lived? Where raw emotions lived? dwelt I would love I said this to the first service I would love to call our friend Ross King one day and to tell him that he's completely wrong when he says that on any given Sunday the church is the most dishonest building on the block you know what for a lot of a lot of places a lot of times he's right but what would it be if we listened to these criticisms from Jesus to the Pharisees And said, no longer are we going to be concerned about the outside of the cup. No longer are we going to be concerned about what the tombs look like on the outside. No longer are we going to be concerned with the minutest detail of the law. Because love reigns here. I felt like somebody should have said amen to that. What would it look like if we broke down our own personal insecurities and were able, when God moved you, to let people around you know? 
Not because I prompted you, but because you felt the Spirit move. What would it be like if we became the body of Christ in such a way that His love exuded from this building to our community? And that as people began to hoard things, hurts, and pains in their lives, they knew that this was a place where you could find freedom. That this is a place, and these are a people where the light of Christ shines. Where freedom and justice and mercy and grace and peace dwell. I'm getting goosebumps. You can't tell because I have a beard, but it's sticking up. Even grizzly bears get goosebumps. What would it be if we were a place that truly said, I'm not going to stop until you have it all, God. I know you're not going to relent, and neither am I. My heart, our hearts, are yours. Let us pray. Gracious and Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for the gift of life for your gift of mercy and peace and justice. God, forgive us for those moments when we take it upon ourselves to run our lives, when we put up facades and barriers to your love as it's expressed through you or your children. Forgive us for those times that we've ignored the hoarding in our lives and in the lives of others. God, give us freedom. Give us freedom to love you truly for who you are and who you're creating us into. God, we thank you and praise you in the name of Jesus. Amen.